0: com acast.
1: This week, writing liars in Can You Ever Forgive Me and Lighting Fires in Burning. Plus Richie Grant talks to us about playing Jack Hawk, a renegade drunkard with nailed-on awards recognition.
2: Hi, my name is Richard e. Grant. Welcome to the Curzon Podcast.
1: I'm Jake Cunningham and after forging some quite realistic emails claiming I was Claudia Winkleman I've managed to get some wonderful guests to come and talk about some new releases with me. Ella Kemp. Hello. Cousin's own Kelly Powell. Hi. And can you ever forgive me somehow Sam Howler got in too. <laughs> Hi. We will begin with a film that lit up Cannes. It was the toast of it. The heat on the Quasette. Let's talk about Lee Chang Dong's Burning. Uh, it's adapted from the Haruki Murakami short story Barn Burning uh, and it's about jong su who dreams of becoming a writer he bumps into Heimi a forgotten childhood friend they begin a relationship but she soon vanishes only return only to return with the mysterious Ben in tow played by the Walking Dead's Stephen Yun who starts to reveal some fascinating hobbies and mm-hmm. uh, Kelly, what are your first reactions to this
3: one? Absolutely love this film. (laughs) Yeah, definitely love this film. Um, As I walked out of the movie theater, I was like, I need to see that again immediately. Um, Just such a beautifully eerie movie that like sucks you in at every moment. You know, just the the pace unfolds. It's such a it is a slow burn Mm. (laughs) movie, Um, but you, I was totally engaged the whole time. Um, And on the second watch, uh, I was even better.
1: I know that with all the burning jokes, it maybe isn't the right thing to say that it moves at a glacial pace, (laughs) Um, but it certainly does. It's kind of wrapped uh, around the mystery of a missing girl, but that kind of really happens about an hour, hour and a half into it. Mm-hmm. It really, really does take its time in in setting up uh, Jong-Soo and then also introducing Hey Mi, introducing Ben. I think he comes in at like 45 minute mark. Mm. It's really, really slow, but it's also it's just setting up this isolation yeah. that is central to Jong-Soo as a character and central to the film. Um, and it's a film that is subjective to him but we it's not really making you aware of that at any point but it is told through his lens yeah um and it does mean that maybe when you're thinking thinking of it in a traditional detective narrative uh it might seem like you're getting all the clues as the snowman might put it um but maybe come the end of the film you realize oh i may need to watch that again because of how much I think I know compared to how much I was actually shown.
3: Yeah, you. But I, even on the second watch, when you know what's what's happening, um, you watch it and you're like, well, I still don't know what to believe. <laughs> I don't know. You know, you watch it and you're like, this is he's so untrustworthy that you you never know what's real, what isn't real, what are stories that he's telling himself, he's telling others, he's yeah, you know, he's crafting this weird narrative that he wants to live his life by.
1: That's it, yeah. It's it's a film about a man searching for something in his life. He's, he's come out of university. He's not sure what to do. He's done a course in creative writing, and then he ends up taking over the farm of his father. Um, and Ben comes to town, who is just a bit older, seemingly doesn't work, but has everything one could want, a wonderful apartment, a wonderful car... Uh, has affection from women, uh, everything that uh, jong Su doesn't have. Mm. And out of that jealousy, jong Su begins to write himself into a larger story that perhaps he has no business being <laughs> part of.
3: Yeah, well, at one point he does call um, Ben, jong Su calls Ben the Great Gatsby. Um, Ella, <laughs> you, you. yes, he does. <laughs> um,
4: <laughs> when this moment happened, it just like kind of flicked a switch for me because I've read the book quite a bit, a bit too much, um, and it just made you think how much it really reflects Ben as a character because he is this enigmatic but mysterious guy that everyone likes and kind of gravitates towards without knowing him. But then I think it also says something about Jong Su as. A narrator where he seems just so similar to some of the ways that the story is told in *The Great Gatsby*, and there's one quote in particular that I was really liked when he, when the narrator in *The Great Gatsby* says, "I was within and without," and then he kind of fleshes that out, saying, "Simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible mm. variety of life, mm. um, and you know, burning." Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and
1: so he references *The Great Gatsby*, uh, the name of the film is uh, from Barn Burning, the Murakami book, which in itself Mm -hmm. is also the name of a William Faulkner book and William Faulkner's books Mm. are part of the story here. I think this film is constantly folding back in uh, on the themes of the text that it's lifting from, which I think means that you can never get to the heart of it because it's all smoke and mirrors. And he says Great Gatsby, which I think, oh yeah, it's a bit like that. But then because of the deception that's at the heart of the film, I think, no, he's saying great cats for you because <laughs> actually, there was nothing at the centre of that. But maybe there is at the centre of this. Yeah. And I think you, you can never truly know what this film is yeah. about in a way. But that's so exciting because even in the few days since I've seen it, I've changed my mind at least three times yeah. as to uh, what I think the events of mm. uh, yeah. the, the finale actually mean. Yeah, mm. um, definitely. And it's full of these fantastic images um, that I was cheesily watching this with my girlfriend and we'd kind of look over at each other and, and do the, the kind of chef's kiss with our hands <laughs> at each other and, uh, exactly the same moments um, and there's a bit uh, during a sex scene where jong su kind of drifts off to look at the reflection oh, yeah. of mm. a uh, like tower like a bi- like cell phone tower on the wall of the apartment it's kind of this crummy dirty one room apartment and you've got this vision of technology and uh, the future kind of bouncing in and that's the thing that he fixates on during mm. this and you can and tell it's fleeting f- yes yeah. and that's totally ties into Ben, Stephen Yun's character and this constant pursuit of something uh, further for himself that he just cannot get to um, mm. and another fantastic scene is when uh, Heimi is dancing to Miles Davis uh, it's a track from the soundtrack to Lift to the Scaffold the uh, Louis Mal picture and that is just incredible filmmaking um, and it's all in the pursuit of something that Heimi refers to as the the greater hunger that we in life have a little hunger which is kind of the day to day things that we strive for and the greater hunger a more existential yeah, meaning uh, of life questions, yeah. yeah. and she met a tribe in Africa and they showed her this dance and she does this dance in this pursuit of the greater hunger uh, at sunset mm. uh, and there's not often that you get films that have such fantastic scenes uh, that you just want to pluck out and let them live by themselves. Not only does this have that in that scene, it has another one immediately afterwards, which takes us to the greenhouses and the burning at the centre of the film, which is where Stephen Young's character tells a story about how he has this addiction that every couple of months he has to go out and burn down greenhouses. And he delivers it so calmly. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. And back-to-back, these two scenes are some of the best things you'll watch this year. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, Do check it out in the cinema if you can, because it looks magnificent. All right, uh, that is burning. uh, But also out this week, we've got Can You Ever Forgive Me? starring the Oscar-nominated now, Richard E. Grant. And Kelly, you were lucky enough to sit down and chat to him.
3: Yes, I was. Um, I caught him just before the Q&A at Cousin Soho, um, where we had a lovely discussion about... Um, a little bit about his time back in South Africa because he is from Swaziland and he studied at my university, so it was very nice to chat to him about that. Um, And also just to congratulate him on his Oscar nomination and tell him how much I'm rooting for him. It was really great.
2: It's Jack Hawk. Last time I saw you, thank you, we were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book card. Am I right?
0: It's slowly flooding
2: back to me. You're friends with them. Um, Julia somebody. Steinberg, yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused there, too. Uh, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed.
3: Welcome. Thank you very much. To the recently Oscar-nominated Richard E. Grant. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming Thank you very much uh, for on the podcast um, and joining us to talk about the now three-time Oscar-nominated uh, Oscar Can You Ever Forgive Me? And I'm very honored to be here with you, not only as a fellow Southern African, mm-hmm. but also as a fellow graduate of, of my alma mater, uh, the University of Cape Town. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, w- what what was it like to go to the university a- at, th- at that time? I think you were there in the, in the late 70s? Uh, yeah, I got there
2: in 1976 in February, just as all the black South African uh, teenage students were uh, in riot about being taught in Afrikaans. So it felt like there were water cannons in the streets in Cape Town, and it felt like you were in the in the crucible of a revolution in history about to happen and change. Mm-hmm. Um, it took much longer than that to do it. But that was, it felt like an extraordinary time to be there for the first time because I'd, I'd spent all my life until I was 18 in Swaziland. So it was a big a culture shock going into all of that. Yeah. And I was there for four years.
3: Yeah, so you studied drama at UCT. Yeah, yeah. and I
2: did an English degree as well. And an yep. English degree. Did you do a pth, uh, the theatre course? Uh,
3: no, I didn't do the theatre course. I studied film. Oh um right. But the drama... Ca- was it on he- the Hitting campus when you were there? Uh, yeah, the it the the my
2: degree was on the main campus and then the Hitting Hall campus was yes. where the theatre training was. Yes,
3: it's still like that. All oh right. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I heard that you were involved with, um, you know... Uh, Southern African theatre, amazing history, like mm-hmm. the space, mm-hmm. um, you started a, a, com- a theatre company. Then.
2: Yeah, I co-founded a company called Troop Theatre Company yes. with a bunch yeah. of people that I was at um, drama school with. Yes.
3: So I studied spaces like the, the space and the uh-huh. market theatre in, in Soweto. Uh-huh. Um, And the space was a home to playwrights like Athel Fugard, uh, John Carney, Winston Shona. And, mm-hmm. um, and it was a place where productions like The Island uh, and uh, Sees Where Is Dead was first uh, put on stage. I Correct. just wanted to know were you there when when all of this was yes, happening? Yes, I was. You yeah. were, you it, was were. The one, it was
2: the one place that you could legitimately have multi-ethnic casts and you could socialize and you could act together and work together. And then at the end of rehearsals, at the end of performances, you had to live in you know segregated places uh, places mm-hmm. so that was that was the the weirdness for me but uh for the african actors they said that was that was the norm that it, yeah. it was just how it was
3: yeah um i'm fascinated with protest theater in general so it's just so cool to talk to somebody who was there at that time <laughs> i'm a fangirl of that era in history in the south african theater um, is there anything that you sort of picked up from the actors and playwrights that you collaborated with and worked alongside in South Africa that you still sort of bring with you in your process today?
2: Uh, the uh, improv classes from uh, drama school at the Little Theatre were the p- things that I have had the most benefit from because it, it, it's b- it frees you up to approach and deal with any circumstance in life and in in work so i'm very indebted to the teachers for that
3: yeah that's amazing um okay so of course you're absolutely superb in this film thank you um i love this film so much i think it's a a story that really gets told um you know because it's about two people who aren't your typical hollywood protagonists Mm -hmm. um And so it's amazing to see the kind of attention that it's garnering um, now, especially with the awards. Um, I want to ask you what you think it is about these two characters, the the story in particular, that's connecting with audiences.
2: That despite the social media saturated era that we're in at the moment where everybody is, your popularity is defined by how many friends you have on Facebook, uh, how many followers you have on Instagram or Snapchat or uh, Twitter, a story that of a central character that is Lee Israel, played so brilliantly by Melissa McCarthy, is she's misanthropic. She is completely authentic to herself. She doesn't give, she doesn't even attempt to charm people, which is the problem that she has mm. uh, socially. But the f- the fact that somebody can be so curmudgeonly and yet you end up rooting for, th- for them in the story, and certainly the character that I play, Jack Hawk, mm who she falls in collusion with, they're two complete outsiders, outcasts, very lonely, near destitute, and they they fall into a kind of life of forgery and criminality out of desperation and necessity. So uh, because you understand how they get there and you follow the journey that they take at the same time the audience is watching them, You, I think that you can you can leave your judgment at the door and go along with, uh, because like anything, once you understand why people do something, compassion can flood in, and at the end of the story, it's revealed that Jack Hawk, who I play, is dying of HIV, so that adds a kind of heft to the the thing, and and it's a true story as well, so genuine is a case of fact being stranger than fiction in this case.
3: Yeah, so so as you mentioned, to play Jack Hawk, who who's obviously a real person, mm-hmm. um, but not a lot has been written about him apart from how Lee mm-hmm. describes him, really in in her book.
2: Yeah, and very scantily at that. I,
3: yeah, exactly. So I wanted to ask you where you drew your inspiration from to create such. I a was friends
2: with and worked with a Scottish actor who was in a movie called Charity of Fire that won the Best Picture Oscar in nineteen eighty one called Ild Charlson, mm-hmm. and he was he died of AIDS at the age of forty in nineteen ninety, mm. and so wearing the bandana for the final scene that i have yeah you know, to indicate that i've lost all my hair that was something that he did and that's how he looked the last time i saw him so he had this combination of incredible promiscuity on the one hand that he was very open about and scabrous wit and also a little boy lost quality of charm that i thought was the sort of perfect combination of that jack hot might have in order to convince people of his innocence so that he could scam them of money selling these forged (laughs) literary letters so that was the inspiration that i had really and the script was very clear about who and what and why and how he operated
3: yes yeah So you've worked with amazing directors in your time, (laughs) Um, to name a few, Robert Altman, uh, Martin Scorsese, um, Francis Ford Coppola, Mm -hmm. and one can only uh, imagine that it might have been a little bit of a masculine uh, environment on those kinds of sets with these kinds of people. That's true. Um, um, but I wanted to ask you what, what your experience was like working with Marielle Heller. Completely um, opposite to... I <laughs> yeah. just come
2: off Logan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Hugh Jackman, which was 300 guys with r- arms bigger than my thighs and <laughs> it was a very testosteroneized environment, mm-hmm. obviously b- fitting the kind of movie and the franchise that the Wolverine movies are. Mm-hmm. So working on something that was a female-centric viewpoint, lead character, woman director woman, mostly crewed by women, co-produced, co-written by women, it was th- the emotional content of everything was the focus rather than it being about action. So that made it a, f- a very actor-friendly environment to be in. Yeah. And because Marielle Heller had been an actor before she became a director, yeah. she is incredibly empathetic and understands the process of which of how actors get to what they have to do.
3: Yeah, um, and obviously the you know the characters of, of Lee and um, and Jack, as they were in real life, were very very close. They formed this amazing bond. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to just ask you to touch on the process of of what that was like to create this bond between. Uh, you and uh, Melissa McCarthy. That was
2: luck as much as anything, because yeah. I only met her on a Friday for two hours, exactly yeah. a year ago in January, uh, in Manhattan, and we discussed all the scenes. You know, went through all the intentions, the actions of the of what internally was going on, uh, and we had lunch together, and then we started working on the Monday, mm. and our friendship was instantaneous and has survived the end of the <laughs> movie so we're now great friends
3: oh great that's amazing to hear yeah others have obviously drawn a connection between uh, this role that you play of jack um, mm-hmm. and you the, the the role that launched your career right. uh, with nail mm-hmm. with nail and i but do you how do you see that that connection do you find that it's well there's a three
2: decade gap <laughs> in between yes. they're both alcoholics they have that in common yes uh but whereas with nail was so entitled selfish arrogant mm and misanthropic. Jack Hawk is the opposite in that he is gregarious, generous by nature, mm. even if he is a crook. Uh you know, he's prepared to do anything in the in the contract invisible contract of friendship for Lee Israel, including clearing up all the cat shit underneath her bed and cleaning up her apartment. Yeah. Um which is something that now would never <laughs> ever have done. Far too selfish. Yeah so you know th- those are the differences in my head but obviously you have the same actor wearing long coats in a period yes. movie set in the 90s as opposed to set in the end of the 1960s and i see it's you know there are obvious <laughs> parallels to yeah, be of made
3: course, of course well i i, th- I think that the, the character that you've created just feels so authentic oh thank no, you no really i i thought it was amazing and um, i'm so happy that this movie exists and hope to one day make something as great as this. Oh, thank you. Um, I just want to say again, congratulations thank on your you on much. your nomination. Um, what does it feel like to be nominated for, the, for your first Absolutely Academy unbe- Award? Absolutely
2: un- unbelievable because I've never won awards or been nominated for anything before. So <laughs> no. to, to have all this happen for one role at the age that I am now is an absolute astonishment. And I'm enjoying every second of the ride for as long as it lasts. I can imagine. Yep.
3: And also you give us all hope from the southern tip of Africa <laughs> <laughs> that one day we can make it into the Academy Awards. Oh, <laughs> thank you very much. Pleasure.
2: I've just come from having my teeth bleached. How do they look? Why would you do that? Oh teeth are a dead giveaway. Okay. Can I buy you a drink, even though you are the posh writer? Thank you. Craigie.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify.
1: But let's talk a bit more about Can You Ever Forgive Me? in which Melissa McCarthy is uh, brilliantly unsympathetic as literary fraudly Israel uh, with her writing career permanently stalled her inability to get over her ex-girlfriend and no job prospects she turns her craft to penning elaborate fake letters from the likes of Noel Coward and Dorothy Parker with the help of her drinking buddy Jack Hock Ella, let me get your first reactions on this. You saw this a while back.
4: I loved this film, and I wasn't expecting to love this film at all. Um, Marielle Heller, who directed the film, I was fairly familiar with her work. Um, I watched The Diary of a Teenage Girl, which she did before, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, But the kind of first images I'd seen from this in the trailer, it didn't strike me as much more than a straightforward biopic, but it feels like so much more than that and i think that comes from you know the performances in themselves the way the story is crafted and kind of the room it it gives to just so much more than just this woman did these things some of these are facts and this is a bit of history that's a bit interesting there's just yeah so much more fleshed out it's wonderful
1: yeah and it had a bit of a rough ride getting to the screen it was uh nicole uh that was directing it she's still um still credited on the screenplay and oh, also has an Oscar Oscar nominee for that. Um, you had Julianne Moore in the lead with Chris O'Dowd in the supporting role. Um, yeah. That sounds like awful. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see that. Yeah. And then that uh, that falls apart and then Mario Heller comes in pretty late in the game. Richard E. Grant only takes the call a few weeks beforehand. He only meets Mario Heller two days before they shoot their first scene. Um, and People talk about like Daniel Day-Lewis and the kind of the art of building the character and the chemistry and how we spent six months together just to get uh, exactly how this relationship would be. Um, And this really feels like it somehow got thrown together at the last minute (laughs) and amazingly every ingredient in it was perfect. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah, he tells a story about. Uh, I don't think he th- on he he's said it in other uh, interviews, but he he said that yeah he only met um, Melissa McCarthy uh, like the Friday the before they started shooting on the Monday, and and he was like no 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 okay actually we do need to spend some time together, and they hit it off like immediately. I think it was just their chemistry that sort of got on, um, but you really do feel like a genuine uh, affection between them. Their chemistry is great in this. Um, as a, as a a weird duo, yeah, crime <laughs> duo, <laughs> just trying to get by.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Let us talk about Lee, then, played by Melissa McCarthy. Um. She she's actually quite a, a bad person. <laughs> she's not like a uh, like we see stubborn characters in film. She's not like a kooky movie. No, stubborn. No. Well, Melissa she, McCarthy's
5: she's... kind of grafted this weird niche for her in the past few years, where she plays these quite awful film characters, but that's funny. Like in um, Identity Thief, where oh, she's still that classic, and Tammy, <laughs> well, and things classic. like that. Another, yeah, these things that don't work. Yeah, where she's like a horrible person, but that's funny. Here she's the grumpiest film character since the guy from Up, and <laughs> she just wants she just wants to be left alone. I've never seen someone who just wants to be left alone so much in a film for ages. Um, uh, yeah, she's so Not bitter. Since 127 acerbic. hours. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's so acerbic and yeah. bitter. But
5: it's not funny, it's really sad. And it feels real. You really feel that this is a real person. that this isn't for laughs, this is how she genuinely is. And she's also made to look like, you know, the frumpiest you could make anyone look. Um, so she's just, and like, she constantly drinks, she's obsessed with her cat. And I love the fact that she's writing, so she's a biographer, and she writes about people like Dorothy Parker, and she takes this, oh, all right, I've done this, takes it to a publisher and a publisher says like, who cares, who wants to read this? And you feel like, oh, This poor woman, Lyosha, just spent so long writing about this, and she really cares about it, and no one cares. Yeah, no no one.
1: No one cares about her writing until she's willing to change her voice into uh, the voice of people that she's never known or never met. and yeah, that was that's a nice pairing to burning of these two people that say that they are yeah. writers, but mm. they are we never actually see them write. We never see mm. their work. Yeah.
4: Mm. When her publisher says no, like don't write this. Her reasoning is there is nothing new or sexy about Fanny Bryce, and I think that kind of ties into the strange appeal of Lee Israel as a character mm. in that. theoretically there shouldn't be anything new or sexy about this story and this film and kind of like oh this woman in history did this thing and as you say she's incredibly grumpy and frumpy and everything but yet you still really feel for her because it's such a good performance and i think it's directed with so much care and and yeah the emphasis on the cat as well like you never Mm -hmm. it's never given enough breathing room and it's always kind of seen as a gimmicky kind of pet or you know red herring or whatever it is like even in Inside Lou and Davis love that cat but i think the loss of a pet is never really shown
3: in a serious and respectful way, yeah. you know, yeah. she, she, and that's really. her whole life. The yeah. cat yeah, yeah. is literally all she has, yeah. until she met Jack and befriended him, or whatever. In the narrative of the story, the, literally the cat is all she cared yeah. about, you know. And and you really feel the desperation of like, I will do whatever it takes to get money to help my cat. Mm-hmm. Like I just need money yeah. so I can take my cat to the vet. Mm-hmm. And then you and you you empathize with her so so much you know the way the story is told um she she, you know she's wrong you know it's not the right thing um but you still understand where she's coming from and i can forgive her (laughs) yeah
5: Yeah. it's such a non-crime as well isn't it really at the end of the day such a small time who cares kind of crime it
3: starts with a ps
5: yeah Yeah.
1: Yeah. well i think over the last year we've we've kind of had a rejuvenation of the, the female-led crime film mm. um, starting with Oceans 8 to Widows to this yeah. um, and gradually we've kind of stripped back the gloss yeah, and the yeah. the actual value at the centre of the heist or crime because um, it's a bit of a heist film we've got here oh yeah it's definitely yeah. a um, heist film but in, as, we've, as we've stripped it back and we've got further into it we've, we've found characters mm. um, and we've found real people and maybe once you do start paring back to the fact that oh we're stealing the metropolitan jewels or whatever um and make it think about oh this money has real value to this person yeah uh, and how important it is we get a lot more from it yeah. yeah one
4: thing about the female-led heist um which i've quite enjoyed the ones that have come out recently quite like Ocean's eight quite like destroyer not a heist but more of a kind of thriller type thing um there is some kind of romantic subplot here as there always is But it is so far down in the list of priorities against other things, which I love. And because, you know, in Ocean's 8, yes, it's about all the women and how great they look and how good they are. But if you look back at the motivations of it, there's an idea of revenge. There's an idea of I want to either show this man or prove this man or get over this man. And there's none of that in this. And yet you still have this strength of character and yeah, also she, you know, goes on dates and wants to have a bit of romance as well. Mm,
3: yeah, it's a similarly, I felt similarly about the way that they deal with the, you know, the fact that these two are gay characters that it doesn't feature as a as a narrative thing. It's like, yeah, it's just who they are. It's just accepted in this world, which is normalised, which is the greatest thing. You know, it's not like, oh, these these people are gay characters, and let's make it about them yeah, being gay that's not why you're telling Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, whilst I did. I really enjoyed this film. It didn't like hit the high notes that I know it has for some people. Um, and I was wondering, I don't know who this question's for, but if if these performances were, were not by names who are doing Richard E. Grant's doing with nail again and Melissa McCarthy's uh, doing a serious role, if there were people you'd never heard of, but the performances were just as good, do you think this film would be getting the same reception?
4: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'd hope so. For, mm. for me, I came to, I watched Wither and I after seeing this film as a bit of long overdue homework. And as I say, the previous roles that Melissa McCarthy has had, um, it didn't really whet my appetite for this so mm. much. So this was honestly such a surprise for me. And the fact that, you know, they're big names getting a great response even better and the way that Richard E. Grant is navigating awards season just on social media as oh, well. Oh, Such mm-hmm. a delight. Yeah. I'm so glad it's him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, he has been terrific fun. Um, at the Q&A, someone mentioned that this is this is a role that's quite similar to With Now, um, and he just went on a rant, gradually revisiting this guy throughout the Q&A, saying, well, apparently this guy's telling everyone that I haven't improved in 30 years. <laughs> 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 um, yes, good value. And if you've never seen it, Richard E. Grant's Hotel Secrets is a fantastic <laughs> show, uh, with involving him jumping on lots of beds around the world. Do check it out. His finest performance, some might say. Um, Alright, and before we go, let's catch up on another film that's coming out this week. Uh, so, at The Toronto Film Festival, the People's Choice Award is pretty much the starting gun for the Best Picture Race. Uh, recent winners that have gone on to be nominated include Three Billboards, La La Land, Room, The Imitation Game, 12 Years a Slave, and Silver Linings Playbook. They've all won that award. They've all gone on to 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 get a Best Picture nomination at the Oscars. Uh, This week sees the 2018 winner Green Book released in cinemas. Uh, We haven't seen it yet, but this story of friendship between African-American pianist Don Shirley and his Italian-American bouncer Tony Lip has now received five Oscar nominations. So if you want to get ahead on the awards, now is the time to do it. So uh, if you do, for some reason, not fancy going to the cinema, you can always stay at home and watch something on Curzon Home Cinema, and I will pass over. To our cousin, Home Cinema correspondent, Sam Howlett. I'm going to get you a jingle.
5: Yeah, great. (laughs) Uh, Well, this week, speaking of the Oscars, you can finally catch up with Bjorn Runger's The Wife. So this is the film starring Glenn Close and Jonathan Pryce. Glenn Close, not only Oscar nominated, she's been nominated and has won pretty much every single Best Actress award in the lead up to the Oscars. So I think at the moment it's hers to lose. Uh, we were big fans of it loved it and Kelly even spoke to Bjorn Ringer the director a few months ago and we did that show so you can look back at our past catalogue to listen to our wife show but yeah the wife is now available on Cousin Home Cinema brilliant and if you've got any thoughts on can you ever
1: forgive me or burning or green book or any other recent releases do let us know by emailing at podcast at kersen.com. we'll read those out on next week's show and you can tweet us the old-fashioned way at curzon cinemas as well if it's your first time joining us uh, do please subscribe to the show or leave us a review or comment wherever you get your pods that can be on itunes acast or spotify next week we'll be talking about if beale street could talk with its academy award-winning director barry jenkins if you want to keep up with us, you can do so on social media. Following Sam at Sam Haller underscore one. Kelly at
3: K-S underscore Powell. Ella at E F-E-Kemp.
1: And me at Jake H. Cunningham. Thank you so much for joining us. It's time for us to say goodbye. So we'll go around again. It's bye from Kelly. Bye! Bye from Sam. Goodbye. Bye from Ella. Goodbye. And bye from me. Bye-bye.